Hi, and welcome back to Prey vs. Predator. We are so excited. We have an amazing guest today. We have Lindsay Williams here in the house with us, who is from the docu-series Shiny Happy People, The Duggar Family Secrets on Amazon Prime. Trigger warning, there are going to be sensitive issues talked about, uh, sexual abuse and course of control behaviors. So please take time to take care of yourself within that. We just are so thrilled to have you today, uh, Lindsay, to join us. And we are going to talk about her story specifically because we really didn't hear all of, I think, all the nitty gritty details of your experience and we how that relates to us as people that talk about prey and predators in this world. And maybe the listeners can take that with them and arm themselves for their, any interactions that are not not healthy. So thanks again, Lindsay, for joining us. Come here. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Thank you so much. I, I really enjoy your podcast and I love what you guys are doing with these contrasts of Prey and Predator because I think it's really important for people to to realize that sometimes you're not Prey simply because you're weak or you weren't paying attention. Um, and Predators are a lot more insidious than we think they are. And I think I've learned through all of uh, my adult life that Predators somehow have a sixth sense about them where they can tell that Prey is susceptible. Um, so I'm really excited to to kind of bring this concept into my own story. I think it's going to be really interesting to see how it unfolds, especially talking to all three of you. Awesome. Okay, so Lindsay, do you remember the first time that you heard the acronym IVLP or like what was happening in your life when it started to change? Because from what I understand, you, you sort of had a typical upbringing for the first while. Yeah, um, I would say that my my upbringing has probably seemed traditional from the outside, but has been completely not from day one. Mm -hmm. Um, I was birthed um, by a 17-year-old teenager, and my birth father was not allowed to be in the picture, and I'm grateful for that. Um, And then when I was about a year and a half old, she met who I now call my dad. He adopted me. And so uh, very early on, he was my father and always has been. Um, We, my, the other... The other proponent to this or component to this is that my um, my father was also in the military. So I started out in life already on the move with a lot of change, never feeling grounded, um, kind of always a bit of a nervous child too, and always yearning for my own personal control. And I remember that from like single digit age. And I couldn't really put my finger on that. How do you know as a child, you just, you just feel like things just aren't right they aren't right and they don't feel stable somehow. Um, But around six or seven years old is when I remember my parents getting into seminars. And I was still a little too young to understand exactly what was going on. But I knew that every time they would go to a seminar, they would come come back and something would be removed from the home or from myself. Um, My world, instead of getting larger as I grew, it got a whole lot smaller. And they got into the Advanced Training Institute program, also known as ATI, which is Bill Gothard's homeschooling program. It's It's an offshoot of IBLP that he created. And my parents very, I think it was eight years old when they got us involved. So it was eight, my brother was six, and my little brother was four, maybe three and a half or four. So from a very young age for them. And I had already gone through the third grade. So in public school, 
but had moved, I think, once or twice at this point. So again, even school was not, it didn't feel very solid to me. But I, we got home and, or my mom started teaching us from home in the basement with milk cartons and plywood slabs with some contact paper over the top of it. And that was it. That, and now we were going to sit in the basement and we were going to learn from mom. And I, I really do remember from those very early ages feeling like my mom doesn't know what she's doing. I mean, mm. I had a comparison. I had teachers in school that even with 30 children in the room or 15 or whatever, they could still give me information that kept me hungry and kept me interested. And I'm telling you, ATI and the wisdom booklets were the most droll, boring, unimpressive, unexciting uh booklets that I had ever looked at. And so my mom was trying to, you know, I, I had seen textbooks and my teachers were all into big creative learning and, and it just the, even the group activities that we would do, it just, there was so much more that was, um, intriguing to me. And this was like, I'm with my little brothers and like, ugh, they're annoying and they're not paying attention mm -hmm. and I'm distracted. I really need to be able to focus and that I don't do well with distractions. And, um, <laughs> So it was it was a hard few years, even just in those very beginning years. Um, again, my parents would go to seminars. They would go to Knoxville. I think it was in Indianapolis first, but then they moved into Knoxville. When I was around 12, I started going to the homeschooling seminars with them in Knoxville. But prior to that, so 8 to 12, they would go to these seminars by themselves for the week and then come back. And again, even more would be removed. And there were times where I'm like, oh, man, mom and dad are going to the seminar again. Is there any more they can take from us? Okay, so Is give us an more? example. Like what? Yeah. So what would be removed? Like well, Barbie's? Like the television. Yeah, okay. The television was probably the first one. And then um, sugary cereals were the next one um which to a kid sugary cereals is really everything yeah. hell, you know and you go from eating lucky charms to eating wheat bran no. you know or whole wheat you're just like oh <laughs> it's not like it's the end of the world but you're like wow this is weird um and then the 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 hyper focus on the bible not being able to read fantasy stories anymore not being able to listen to normal music. Mm. Um, the clothing didn't really, I mean, it kind of shifted, but it didn't really, really get into high gear for me until I was about 14. And I think that's because, you know, developmental years and, you know, oh no, she's she's got bumps on her body. We gotta, we gotta hide all that. Um, so it, at first it was, you know, you can only wear like long shorts around the house to you can only wear skirts around the house to, uh, you know, no clavicle showing no longer. Can it be sleeveless? It just, it was just, there were just like these little increments that would come along every single time. Um, I had friends in the neighborhood. Now I can't play with those friends. Now I can only play with these friends. Um, now I can't play outside on Sundays. Like it just, it was little things, but it was, it felt so constant. Um, my hair had to start being done a certain way. Uh, I couldn't wear makeup, but I had really frustrated skin. So, uh, you know, you're a little embarrassed and you're becoming a female and you're, you know, for me, I was becoming more womanly. And I'm like, I, all the other ladies seem to have nice skin. Why do I have a problem? And you feel self-conscious about that. And, um, even for me, I, when I got into my late teen years, I got so uncomfortable and I, I don't think I've totally flushed this out with myself, but I've got, I used to get so frustrated that people would say my mom and I look like sisters. Oh, and you don't want to hear that when you're a teenage Sorry? girl. You don't want to hear that when you're a teenage girl. You definitely don't. No, you do not. <laughs> even to this day, like, hello. It's, it's a weird thing to say, 
I think sometimes to people like, oh, you look just like your mom. And it's like, well, if that daughter idolized her mother, I could see someone saying that. But if you're not aware of the relationship, it's a very uh, out of touch thing to just say to a child or a teenager because they're trying to have their own autonomy and they're they're they don't even realize they're struggling and fighting to have that. And then you're just putting them right back into like, you're just like your mom. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would constantly look and say, no, I'm nothing like my mother. I am like five inches taller than she is. I have broader shoulders. I have a different face. Like I could just pick out all the little things. And I realize now it really was me fighting for like, I want my individuality. Mm. Um, and then we would dress the same when that started happening. Oh, I got even more frustrated with it. But on the outside, I'm just like, just roll with the punches. You have to just keep rolling with it. Very early on, if we like reverse back to the 11, 12 year old days, I knew deep down, like in the instinct inside of me said, this is just how it is. And you have no skin to put in this game. You have to accept what's happening to you. These are your parents. They have full control over you. Um, And I think what got me into that narrative in my own head was the disciplining that was happening at home. Because Bill Gothard is a huge believer of uh, basically child abuse, but of corporal punishment. And that those disciplines are going to bring your children up to be the best, most chiseled and attuned children to God. And so your parents tell you, we love you. This this hurts us more than it hurts you. And I'm like, I doubt it. <laughs> if we were to trade places, I think you'd realize that it actually does hurt. <laughs> yeah, that, that um, statement you just said, this hurts me more than it hurts you, is something that was said to me as well when I was constant. Yeah, when I was mm-hmm. spanked. So I don't know if that's what you're referring to is like is is spanking, which in the documentary, we we discussed how uh, disgusting it was to watch that demonstration. Mm -hmm. It was like watching something that we shouldn't be watching, you know, like I wanted to avert my eyes because I was so disgusted and listening to the audience almost cheering oh, yeah like, what the heck? yeah what's going on yeah and then give me a hug after like i was ju- we were just saying that it was so mm-hmm. it was a violation it was a violation of a child oh and then yes. wrapping that violation in teaching the child that their job was to comfort the adult who just violated them Yes. To assuage your aggressor or abuser for the guilt that they may potentially have um, in their actions. And somehow the the onus is on the child to do that. And remember, he he asks him to give him a hug to restore the relationship. And it's not it's not fervent enough. And so he bends him over again. Yeah. 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 It's it is this constant. It puts a child and I know firsthand it puts a child in a state of hyper awareness defeat and complete anxiety and paranoia. Mm. You never know what a parent is going to request of you beyond what you even think you're capable of doing. And when you're forced to do what you don't think you can, and it gets even worse after that, um, the the mind just screams inside. There's, and, there's and you, nowhere to put it. And I imagine that you have to end up as a child starting to violate yourself in order to tolerate the violations that the adults doing because the the adult the message to you from the adults when the when the adult says you know this hurts me more than it hurts you is it robs you of being in pain yes. and and it suggests to you that your job is to comfort the adult and to not have pain yes. i mean it's so insidious 
and infuriating. It's cruel. It is completely cruel and it is torturous. And it and it reshapes a child's mind. It reshapes their internal system. It reshapes their nervous system. It reshapes their gut instinct. Yeah. I mean, it is the thing that I have fought the most over is my gut. Um, I have IBS. I have a lot of other anxiety issues. And thank goodness for EMDR and an amazing therapist over the last two years and medication, I've been able to quiet that gut response of anxiety instead of my head saying, hey, we're safe. We're okay. You can leave the situation. You have the words to use. I had all those modalities and my stomach would say, we got to get out of here. Like this is, this is really bad. And I'm like, I'm fine. We're not on a roller coaster. Like calm down. You know, the guy just didn't like the question you asked at, at Starbucks. You know? <laughs> you know, I'm just like flipping out into like this really crazy over, over strenuous response. That's not, it's not normal. Did, um, did your parents ever tell, say or mention what attracted them to IBLP? Or was it just like the thing to do with Christian parents at the time? I honestly have had a very hard time with my parents. Okay. Um, they just really stay tight-lipped about all this. And when it when it really comes down to brass tacks, some of the answers that we do receive are we were following the Lord's will. Yeah, okay. And that's just a, I don't know, it's just such a, such a slap backhanded, you know, you'll get over it, it's okay. That's not enough. What what was God's will? What spoke to you? What, who told you? How did you hear his voice? What what verses did he give to you? Was it just you were hoodwinked by Bill? Can we just take that admission and just move forward with healing? But they they really are very like stuck in this way of, you know, we did right by what we thought we were doing and cannot hear the amount of abuse that we now perceive not that we perceive it, but that we know has been yeah. put on us. Um, they don't want to they don't want to take ownership whatsoever. Did I'm really curious about your mother. Now you can answer whatever you want to answer. But um, essentially, like your story is very similar to mine in the sense mm-hmm. I was a single raised by a single mom. I didn't really know my father. So when she found. You know, Christianity in because it came from very strong Catholic background. It was the time of, you know, the Jesus movement and, you know, evangelical culture. It was so different. But at the same time, it became very, very um, regimented and legalistic and and yeah. right wingy, you know, uh, which is so weird, you know, ultimately in the end. And um, I'm just curious if it was sort of the similar situation for your mom, if she was a single mom. And you didn't know your dad. Was it like she was looking for something like in the IBLP? Because I know my mom was looking for that kind of certainty of mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. this type of believing. Yeah, I I completely can see that, and I, I think that that my mother was very similar in that she had a very tumultuous childhood with a lot of her own abuse stories, and when she met my stepfather, the only the only information I have is that they uh, they met at like some, I don't know, either a youth thing, like Bible youth thing or something. And he was like, hey, you should come to my my church or, you know, like the church youth group or college college group, I think it was. And she was like, yeah, sure. OK, but but I, I can't be her there like her, a clinical therapist or psychiatrist yeah. to really diagnose what the issues are. But I think from my own perspective of her, I think there's always been a very deep seated need for belonging. Mm-hmm. And I think. I think that um, 
whenever she's able to find community of similarity, then she latches into it very heavily. And so my my stepdad actually said, I, I would love to marry you, but I, you have to be a Christian first. And so she became a Christian. And so I think, and, and she is still to this day, a very devout uh, Christian, albeit lifestyle doesn't match the, the words of the, of the, the faith. There's a lot of hypocrisy that sits there. But um, I, be, I don't have the answer as to which one chose IBLP, who yeah. heard about it first, what their first seminar was. They don't answer those questions. Hmm. Do you think yeah. there's do you think there's shame? Like, is it, are they more on the prey side? Like there's shame and a sense of um, regret. Uh, we, we can't handle that we hurt you. Or do you think it's more predatory? Um, we we don't accept that we hurt you. We we were doing the right thing. We're good and you're wrong. I think it's dismissive and defensive. Okay. is the feeling I always get about it. Yeah. I I don't think that they set out to have a free space to abuse their children, but I also think that there seemed to be no point along the journey that they thought, you know, she's 15 and we're still doing this. Maybe we should reconsider choices or our children are becoming pretty resistant to all of this and we're having a lot of trouble in the home maybe there's something else we need to do, but it just, they just defaulted so often to abuse. I mean, I, um, I, and just defaulting to, to Bill's system. Honestly, I sort of see those people. I put them in a camp of like, uh, and I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on this. I put those people in a camp of being addicted to superiority mm -hmm. and certainty. Yeah. I, I, I really do believe that my father um, lives along the lines of a narcissist. Um, and the, the disciplining was just gruelingly awful. Mm. And I, I had a very hard time too, with the little boy in the documentary, I'd never seen that footage before. And it, it undid me. I was, uh, in a panic attack for about 15 minutes and I was screaming around my house. So and you my husband felt was like, it. Okay. And I'm like, I'm not okay. Yeah. And I was just like, I knew this was happening to other people. I, I've always known it, but nobody, none of us kids would ever talk to you about to, to each other, even your best friend. You would never say how your dad was spanking you at home. Um, but then to see it, you know, 20 years later, still happening to these kids. I, yeah. I Oh my gosh, it, it was too much. And I also just, I, my therapist called it exposure therapy. She was like, you know, this is where you're like kind of experiencing it again because you're seeing it again. And I was like, you know what the worst part is? I wish that mine had been as kind as that wow i wish that i that all i was doing was bending over a knee and getting like a, a little pat on the fanny and, and and move along you know i i could have embraced that pretty pretty easily but you know dowel rods and yardsticks and you know uh, wooden spoons and stuff like my brother was notorious for breaking the wooden spoons if that tells you anything as far as like the rage and the and the amount of hitting that would have to happen in order to split a wooden spoon mm. um and it, it just even when i say that out loud i'm still so it panics me and then it like it enrages me because I have so many little ones in my life that I know I don't have children myself, um, but I have godchildren. And I, anytime I'm around them, I'm like, I can't imagine that this was happening to me in the way that it was. Would never want to harm one of these little guys. 
Well, and the purpose so, is to break their spirit too, ultimately. It's to break yes. their like they're a horse. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Like they're Absolutely. a horse. And and that Beat is it out of you. Beat your will out. Yes. And and so like was the punishment, did it match what you did? Like Oh God, never. No. no. Okay. No. Yeah. I mean, and maybe once or twice, maybe there was, you know what? No, never. I don't yeah. think that that level no. of, of hitting anybody, you know, it, I don't, I really have the firm belief that no one should hit another person in order too. to inform them how to reshape themselves. It it does not work in the mind. It like, it, it, it breaks brains to hit people. And even the question that when I asked him, like, I don't, I'm not inferring that you should be children. I'm just like, you know, you're making, you know, it is so sometimes I hear these stories where people are radically abused for like, I don't know, waking up two minutes behind their alarm clock, you know, and, Mm -hmm. and it's like, oh, like your reaction does not fit the you know, the consequence, it doesn't work, you know, and I don't know if that's part of the IBLP, like all corporate, because even we, like we were talking about the Pearl book, the, um, mm-hmm. what is it called again? The train up a child, train yeah. up a child and the whole blanket technique. And yeah. did your mom do that on your younger brothers? No, because we were already, you know, single digit children. We weren't infants. Okay. That's yeah. good. Um, going back to your story, because you were saying that part of what shut down your sort of authenticity, your your sense of self, was this this um, the the cruelty and and uh, of the punishment. Um, mm. So around eleven, twelve, thirteen, you were having this really this shutdown of your authentic self. You knew that your voice was not going to be heard. It didn't matter what you wanted. So you had this sense you were saying of having to go with the flow, just like maybe walking on eggshells type of thing just making sure everybody was pleased or happy mm-hmm. it, i i see it now as i became an imposter i was fully an imposter syndrome um you know i became a christian i did all the things i was supposed to sometimes it was out of just uh uh, trying to st- keep up with my brother who was younger than I was. He became a Christian first and he was going to get baptized first. I'm like, oh, he always does the firsts, you know? And I'm like, I need to get on board with this. I'm the oldest. And that's how Bill does it too. You know, the firstborn's supposed to be the leader and they're supposed to try everything out before the younger ones. And you kind of already have that conditioned in your head, even as a young, young person. Um, but the the disciplining um just to answer what you were kind of answer back to what you were saying too. Like if I didn't say yes, sir, no, sir, that was enough. Wow. wow. It had to be yes, sir. No, sir. Yes, ma'am. No, ma'am. If it was, uh-huh. Sure. Got it. Okay. I hear you. Anything that was not yes, sir. No, sir. And I, you know, sometimes I'm like, was that bill? Was that the military? Was it, it? I think it's just all of it. Um, And so it could be as simple as that for us getting horribly disciplined. Um, But in all of that, you start to realize it doesn't matter what I do. Discipline's just going to happen because somehow they're either looking for it. They're looking for things as an outlet to expel their own physical internal rage, Mm. or they just really hate children and don't genuinely love us. Or they've also drank from this huge Kohle bowl of Bill Gothard and believe truly believe that hurting your kids is the best way to somehow make them wonderful, perfect Christians. Um, so in that in that time frame between 12 and 15, I was like, no one's coming to save me. 
God doesn't hear me because you know I'm on my knees every night crying to him, say, like literally crying, saying, please, God, don't like, what can I do better? What can I do different? Like, and Bill Gothard's training also teaches you that you don't move on from certain pain unless you've learned the lessons. Mm. So I'm like, what am I not learning? What am I not getting? I'm, I am trying and it doesn't matter how perfect I am. There will always be something else that will be figured out that makes me imperfect. So I, in my head, abandoned God. And I was like, just pretend. I I don't know if you guys have ever seen the movie Madagascar, yeah. um, but the little penguins, cute and cuddly boys, <laughs> cute and cuddly. Like That's literally what I felt like. I'm like, just wear the navy and blue, just have a big happy smile. I mean, I got so used to it that even now it freaks me out how I can be running errands all day and then sit down on a podcast with you guys and literally just be like, yeah, no, I'm super cool. Everything's great. I just, I know how to work in high pressure, last minute situations because I learned to be so intensely hypervigilant and aware of everything around me at all times. And probably how to dismiss your own needs and always. Yeah. Well, and you said um, in the docuseries that you were raised to be afraid. Yes. Uh, Like always. Yeah. There, there was always fear. Mainly the fear was due to being hit. Yeah. It was due to the the disciplinal fear. Um, I wasn't so much. (laughs) I had a little bit of fear actually when I was around nine of if I die it wasn't worried about going to heaven or hell. I was worried that people wouldn't remember me. Mm-hmm. And it, yeah, it was very, very strange. I still kind of look at this one going, that was really weird. But I was so afraid that no one would remember me. And so I made three by five cards and cut out little, you know, mm-hmm. in, in school, you get the little tiny headshots and they're like not even an inch tall and you get like a hundred of them. So I still had some from when I was in school and I cut them out and I was, I wrote a three by five card to each one of my parents, to my brothers, to my grandparents. And I stapled my picture to it. Like, here's a card to remember me by when I die. Wow. And, and you, I look back and I'm like, again, a very strange thing for your child to do. Maybe someone should ask some questions. Yeah. And I really think it was surrounded around Christianity and becoming a Christian. Because if I die, then I will I be in heaven or hell? Because I know that like God doesn't seem to hear me at all. He doesn't ever fix anything I request. I try to be as good as I can. So I don't know if I die, maybe most of the people I know won't be with me. I don't know. Well, and it sounds like you weren't known and you were treated as if you didn't exist or didn't have a right to exist. Yeah, so that's very true. That was there, too, as well. I was so unheard. Yeah, I was seen as someone always doing wrong, mm-hmm. but I was never heard when I asked questions or I was curious. It still frustrates me like when I'm on podcasts or even the documentary when they were interviewing me, asking a lot of the beforehand stuff about parents and everything. And it's so frustrating to say, I have no idea. I'm in my 40s and I have no clue. Yeah. You know, that's how long they've just been like dismissive of giving us what we need. And that's answers. Well, so it's the the behavior just continues. What what you yes. want to need is not important. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You're very right with that. Yeah. I do have a question about your homeschooling because mm-hmm. that just does not sound fun at all. And I <laughs> I went to a Christian school that had very few resources, accelerated Christian education, mm-hmm. ACE. Um, for when I was really little, um, and they had those booklets, but they, yes, yes, that's what they were called. Packets of accelerate. Yes. It was very, yes. Oh, yes. (laughs) Yeah. So, but your wisdom booklets, did they have any academic value at all? Like, 
when I hear what was in them, I'd be like, oh, like, was there math? Was there anything of value in them? I would say like the nutritional value is very low when it comes to the wisdom booklets. There, There is just, I have, I will be honest and say, I have not reread all of the wisdom booklets as an adult. So I could, I almost feel like the, the answer I have for you is that it definitely gave me nothing going into the world. Um, and I have looked back through, I think like wisdom booklet one, and though maybe there's like a paragraph here or there that is accurate, but there's so much that is so heavily biased and it's not academics. Like you have a textbook and it's a linear learning process. Here's my math book number one, and here's my math book number two. And now I'm in algebra and you keep building upon what you know, academically, the wisdom booklets throw all of that out. Um, it's first of all, it's schoolhouse learning. So again, you can have 19 children who knew, and you can teach them all from the same booklet. Um, oh. that, again, that I think already tells you that the academic approach is just, it's just gone. So everything is coming from a Bible approach. It's coming from Bill's head. It's coming from a lot of other leaders that were within uh, IBLP at that point. Like they had this huge jam session up in the Northwoods and they all came together and started furiously creating all of these wisdom booklets and kapoom, there's 54 of them now. So I am terrified at the idea of looking back at them to really see like what academic morsels were really there because it just was so confusing all of the time because nothing built upon itself. One book might have a section of math and from the very beginning, you're learning some weird algebraic equation. And then in the next one, you're learning, I don't, I couldn't even tell you what, you know, because it would just be completely different. Like here's mileage because Jesus walked really far. Um, and it was all based on Matthew 5, 6, and 7. So they're going through those three chapters of Matthew verse by verse. Why that's, just that's their why? guidance. Why was it between those three verses? Like what was the reason? Well, it's the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon yeah. Matthew 5. But is those, that those just... were the words of Jesus that he gave to all of us on how to live the Christian or, you know, a godly life. And huh. it has been Bill's fixation from day one um even now he like harkens back to like the commands of christ game that that heather shows in the documentary with all the pits um the commands of christ being matthew 5 6 and 7 with the sermon on the mount like i always think that these things have a surface a surface um uh logic mm -hmm. and then they have a predatory logic so oh, yes. on the on the surface the logic sounds like we're going to learn about jesus um, but it, but the predatory logic, it, I, I'm just curious, like, is there predatory logic in terms of keeping people uneducated? I think yes, 100%. Bill Gothard didn't think education was necessary or needed. You didn't need a secular worldly education, which he just bundled into any type of good learning you don't need. You should learn through apprenticeship. You should learn through what wiser adults have to share with you. And so all of it, he called it head knowledge. All of this academic hooey-fooey is just head knowledge that puffeth up a man that creates pride in them because now they're, they're knowledgeable, um, which I, again, I always fought it as a kid. I'm like, but wouldn't it be great if you were smart and you knew 
stuff and then you wouldn't always wonder about things. You know, Google didn't exist at the time and we didn't have a set of encyclopedias in the house to really look stuff up. We had the sources and we had the, um, what is it, the Anglican something or other, the, the, the Greek thesaurus. Um, oh my gosh, there's so many different things that we had that were all just <laughs> oh, wow. like cross-referencing other scriptures. And uh, it was just, you could play a complete like Tetris game of making a scripture verse work for you. Yeah, I yeah. learned that. <laughs> I learned how to manipulate the word of God, but did I learn how, my ABCs and, and everything else I needed to? No. In the documentary, and Chad mentions that he had a friend that um, her father said, you know, well, at least, you know, you know, simple fractions you can cook and sew. That was my father. Um, I had a very hard time understanding math. And I know now it's because I didn't build upon what I needed yeah. to in order to understand the fundamentals. And so I'm also a heavily visual learner. So my mom got the program Mortensen Math. Have you guys ever heard of that? It was like bricks and blocks. So you had the 100 square and 10, 10 strip oh, of 10 yeah. and fives and twos. So you could add and subtract and like visually see how it worked because I would sit there and try to count on my fingers. And then I would make four points on my finger pad so that I could get up to, you know, 20 and 40. And I did all this other stuff to try to cope with the fact that I wasn't getting a foundational education. And it's really, you know, you find your way to survive in it. But I hate that that's how my mind works now because it's so slow to get to where I need to go. But it it held you back and it held you down and it held yes. you away from asking the questions that you needed to ask to get away from the predatory rhetoric. Yes. And sometimes you you know when you're that young, you don't even know you should be asking those questions. Right. Well, and and you they're going to they're going to damn well keep you as far away from those questions as possible it sounds like. Mm -hmm. Uh but by keeping you as ignorant as possible. And then I'm going to guess the other thing I'm wondering if that does is then you do get out in the world and you do feel ignorant. You do oh. feel scared. You do feel dumb and then you don't want to be there because it, it's scary Yes, yeah, confirming I, you can't of what belong. The, it's yeah. confirming of what they've taught you that like we use the term. I don't know if this is from IBLP, but we used to say Egyptian. No, we the pastoral whatever staff in the church that I grew up in. It was the Egyptian schools, which was really odd because it was like hmm. we were the Israelites, I guess. But the Egyptian schools teach you this. But the, I know and I'm thinking, what's wrong with the Egyptian schools? They might have some valid stuff in the Egyptian schools. I don't know why it was Egyptian schools, I guess, because whatever. Were they saying like Egyptian meaning secular schools? Yeah. Or Egyptian yeah. specifically? No, like the no. Amish call them the, the English. Yeah, I guess it was any secular school was the mm -hmm. Egyptian yeah. schools, you know. And oh, interesting. Yeah, it was really odd. Now, in hindsight, I'm like, those poor Egyptian so schools are probably very yeah, good. You're like, what's again, us versus them. We're better. Yeah. We know better. And they're comparing themselves to the Israelites. How how dare they? Oh, that's a very good point. Like, yeah, how the dare fact, they? They're not Jewish. Yeah. yeah. But you're <laughs> Jewish and we're so persecuted. So it is, again, <laughs> another value of saying us against them. Because mm -hmm. we're so persecuted. 
Right. And, and why as a child would you want to seek anything outside of the home or outside of the church at this point either? You have been completely funneled into your purpose by that. What you're, I love that you're saying predatory. It's still, it's, I will be honest and say, I kind of bristle at the word a little bit because I think when you think of predator, you really do think of like the wolf or the tiger in the grass is ready to pounce. And it it is a fear system that you know that there's somebody out there that's going to call you into account if you don't stay exactly exactly where you're supposed to, or if you can't run away fast enough. Um, you know, so I I think that it does feel that way and that you are curtailed into and very told how to live out your like sexual roles. You know, I, I, I'm sure there's a better way to, to phrase that, but you know, women were meant to be this and men were meant to be this. And so even from that very, you know, 11, 12 years old, I just fundamentally knew I would promise myself, give my heart to my dad he would hold on to it when I was ready and or a man came along and wanted to marry me. Then I would trust my dad to know that he could figure out if this guy was right for me. And then I would marry that man because I trust my dad with my heart. And then I just like go over to that guy, you know, and you're like, well, that's the, that's it there. Guess, guess. Yeah. Again, your, your, your voice, what you want, what you need yeah. is, is totally irrelevant here. But yet you're supposed to be this joyful, happy about the future of your life person. And I, I've been asked many times, like, what were your hopes and dreams as a kid? And I'm like, it's the saddest thing that someone could say. I just hoped that the man I married would be kind. Yeah. I didn't know to dream to be a makeup artist in New York City and live in L.A. and fly around the world for Fashion Week and do these big things. Like, are you kidding me? Like, no, I knew what my purpose was for whether it, I liked my purpose or not. Well, your purpose was to please somebody else. Well, you're Men. to be perfect prey. All men. You're groomed groom to be prey for the perfect predator. Yep. Conditioned. Got to come along and, and tell you what they wanted and needed. Yep. And so we're going to, we're going to do, we're going to start you young. We're going to make you somebody who learns how to um, to subdue yourself, how to violate your own boundaries, uh, to not ask questions. Um, and yet, uh, you know, like we were talking when we, we, we had this momentary break, we were talking, there's this fire that burns so bright in you. And, and, mm-hmm. and we can only imagine what that was like to have this fire somewhere inside you so strong and so bright. And yet this this powerful capping of that of that flame so to speak can you speak to that like and when did that get on fire <laughs> like but i mean first of all for, thank you that i mean i could just cry you know uh, i feel like when people say s- things along those lines it, it it kind of hits me in the gut a little bit because i'm just like <gasps> i just got seen you know, and 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 I wasn't given that as a child. I that was suffocated. Oh, I've been a feisty person probably since I came out of the womb. I I don't think that I went into this world very quietly. Um, but I've I've always had a mouth. I've always had energy. I've always had what I know now is desire. Um, but I've always had an opinion. Even as a kid, I had a very clear black and white opinion of things. And sometimes I'm I'm not sure where I and ATI meet or if I was able to really hold on to that core part of me because I'm like, well, I mean, I'm vivacious, but is that because I was conditioned to have to be that way all the time? But I'm like, no, I like being up. 
I don't, I don't actually prefer to be in the depression of things. Uh, my depression is very different than people who, you know, truly cannot get out of their bed. Um, it's more uh, on a different wavelength, but I think it, <laughs> I'm like, how do I articulate this? I feel like I could say, you know, when I was in public school, I would get report cards that would say social butterfly doesn't pay attention in class. And I, I realized like I need to be very focused and quiet or have music playing and just focus on the things if I'm learning. But otherwise, I just want to live. I want to live this life. And, and it's really sad. It truly, when I look back at all of this thinking, my parents could have guided me into so many different facets of myself to who knows what I would have become. I wanted to be a concert pianist when I was eight. My parents bought me a piano from these two older women who had passed on, didn't have kids. And I felt so wonderful and loved that I got to take this piano from these two women who had no, no lineage. And I could be that on this piano. And, um, but I was only allowed to play hymns mm -hmm. or classical music. And I could play a few music, like movie music soundtracks, like Anna Green Gables was my first recital. Um, but after that, it was just, I didn't want to play hymns. I didn't want to, like, could I? Sure. Did I like it? No, it was so rigid. And even when I tried to make it flourish, you know, everyone's like, it's too contemporary. And you're just like, oh, it's so boring and it's so controlled and it's so de yeah. defined. And I just, I felt caged constantly. Constantly. But then on top of that, like trying to burst out, but then also not upset the, the glass house you're in. Yeah. You're just like, I don't know how I'm doing this. And I also found out from my therapist that I was not someone who disassociated. So I lived in the torture and tormentous space of my head and my spirit. Meanwhile, it's also at the same time getting crushed by my father with all of the harsh discipline. And then I'm getting shrouded because my body's too, too much of a distraction to people. And it's like, you really just feel claustrophobic in your own skin. And how, how are you supposed to somehow get to the point where you get married and you're submissive to somebody else? And yet you're fighting all these other things. And I was really sad for my future. I was so sad that I would marry somebody and just have kids and repeat what I've just done for the past like 15 years. I didn't want to go through the wisdom booklets again. I didn't want to learn how to teach the kids and do, bleh, you know, I, and everyone's like, you're so good with kids. You're like, you're so fun and they love you. And I'm like, well, cause I'm an animated person. Yeah. But that doesn't mean I want 12 of them. So you, you could know? feel even at that moment to do that life would be a betrayal of yourself. Absolutely. 1000%. I, I swore to myself, I wouldn't consider marriage until I was at least 35. Mm -hmm. I didn't know what my parents would do about that. I didn't know what would happen to me between 15 and 35. But I was like, it ain't marriage. <laughs> not doing um, it. My parents did not have a very good marriage. And so on top of cute and cuddly out in the world and at church, we were a complete nightmare at home. We were so dysfunctional and yet we were perfect at church. And so we always got these accolades and huge praises and people would get into the program because of how perfect our family was. It was so great. I'm just like, oh my gosh, if they could only, if only I had smartphones back then. <laughs> In the 80s and 90s, the phone was just not where it is now <laughs> to what, expose it. When I know, think about how, like, how fun you theirs. are and how much life you have, that's probably what saved you. I think I just compartmentalized parts of myself mm -hmm. and I truly impostered it. I was like, we just got to dig in. And I, I do not know what every day will hold. 
but I do know that I want to live it. Yeah. I, I, I never once thought of, uh, you know, on aliving or ending myself. I, I just, for whatever reason, felt like fighting, even though I couldn't actually fight. (laughs) So I'm curious if there was any buy-in for you at all in this, like growing up years, like, is there anything like in my own situation, I think the buy-in was because of the way I was raised, I kind of, I, I neglected, I, I shamed myself a lot. I did a mm-hmm. lot of self-injury in the sense of like internal and maybe even, well, there was moments of external uh, self-abuse, self-harm. Mm-hmm. But I just kind of wonder, did you have any buy-in moments? Like, even though you are a fighter and you did have like, I am not getting married till I'm 35. But was there a part of you that was like, well, maybe I should. Or is this or I don't know. I'm just curious for you if there was any buy-in of this grooming behavior that you were raised in. That's a really good question. I think. I think the buy-in angle maybe happened more when I became more into my mid to late teens because I started to find maybe, maybe we can call it acceptance, although I think that's a pretty loose term, but like I started finding maybe places for myself within Bill's system, like teaching at the children's institutes. And that was fun. And I got to be with other people. And of course, I know the language. I know how all of this works. So the familiarity of it was very easy. It was so easy to be in all of these places, the training centers, even headquarters to a degree. Like it was simple to be there because I knew the rules. Yeah. You know, and I think when I when I was still at home, I have I have journals that are I mean, someday I'm trying to figure out how I'm going to incorporate them into my story because it's really wild to read those. That's actually what started all of my coming out of of my, with my story um, out on TikTok, because uh, during the pandemic, I started reading these journals and I didn't pick them up since I got married. So it's been 23 years since I read these. Wow. And I I realized, first of all, they're horrible. This little person is just so conflicted and also afraid to put her truth down in the books, because if anyone finds them, you're screwed. So I have this really crazy, like it makes so much sense to me. I feel like I have the decoder ring to my own journals because I know what I was feeling when I read this stuff, but I am crying out to God. Oh, Lord, Lord and Savior, you are so precious to me. And I cry to you every day. And I read this verse and it said this, and I'm hopeful that you will da 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 with my father. And I'm like, all I wanted to write was I wish he would die. Like, I hate him so much. And all he ever does is hit me. So I, it's, it's, it's odd for me, I think, to think of buy-in because I don't, I just really had, an internal block to wanting this to touch the core of me. Mm. And, and yet every single bit of my action, my words, which meant my thoughts kind of had to play along with it to continue to be, make myself safe in this space because it, it was not safe to think anything ulterior to it. So, I mean, does that answer your question? I don't know if it does or oh, not. Oh, it but... does. And it resonates a lot for me. So just even okay. hearing you, I'm like, oh, you know, it, it's it's even for my processing. But thank you. Um, this okay. is about you. But uh, <laughs> uh, no, it's, it's just very interesting because I think because uh, we are talking about grooming 
and how we as prey and we want, you know, our listeners who feel like prey, which is they're amazing, powerful people who Mm -hmm. have been exposed to people that wanted to do them harm, you know, but what is in it, you know, sometimes we do accept the lies that are being said to us and we do take them on. And we take on the issues of our parents or we take on the issues of our predators or we take on the issues of those people who don't wish us well, you know. Well, that's I, that, that I think that's that old idea of, you know, like like Gabor Mate says it really well, where he talks about the, the two most powerful drives of, of a human being are authenticity and attachment. Mm. And so <laughs> yeah. you, you can't have both in the perfect home. You get to have both. Mm-hmm. You you get to be authentically you and be loved, but to whatever degree that. a child has to give up being authentic to be loved, they will. Yes, yes, for that acceptance, yeah, one hundred percent. They and will. That's good. And and you have no choice. Like mm-hmm. a child has no choice. But that's where that that's where the prey. I think are beautiful, strong, powerful creatures, so to speak, because in that heart of empathy and compassion and wanting connection they are willing to do all these things to kind of try to keep that attachment and yet when we see somebody like yourself Lindsay um uh, Amber you've talked about your for your own fire um your own you know anger being a tool and being a gift it's that is the thing that that authentic spirit is so strong and powerful and even though that you can't understand what the predator does because you don't think that way but you can feel your flame going out and there's something in in prey that's like it's it's not going to happen it's yeah. not going to happen and and yet there's so much pressure it's almost a miracle it doesn't happen yeah it, that, that you just don't completely implode yeah you know and yet you did or just break so deeply that you can't even find a way to repair yourself. I, I started to get to that place actually after I left headquarters and I, my, um, who's now my husband, when he was seeking courtship with me, I, the, I, I hit my wall of, I don't know how much more I can actually take. Um, I, I had not fascinated plans for myself or fixed plans as to what I, what options could be there, but I knew that something was going to have to change or I was going to go off the rails. And I didn't know wh- in to what capacity because I was as angry as I was as a, from a kid on even till now, I did not have an outlet. So all of that toxic rage has just lived on, in the depths of me. And I think that's what's kept me toasty and alive, ladies. <laughs> you know, just... Um, Amen. Amen to that. <laughs> yes pissed off yeah well Um, i think that's a good segue because we want to in our next episode talk about that portrait of a predator mm -hmm. and we want to talk about your time at headquarters and um we want to talk about what what does what does a predator look like yeah i think that's amazing Okay, so well, thank you. This has been you. such a joy yeah, to be with so uh, good, a Lindsay. fellow prey and and of somebody whose fire burns as bright as yours. Um, it, it is honestly, it's an honor and a joy. So thank you mm-hmm. for joining us. We'll see thank you in our you. next episode. Yes, sounds good. <laughs>